This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, welcome everybody. This is episode 65 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're back this week. We took last week off because, of course, we have businesses to run, but we're back and we've got an amazing guest this week, a really cool topic and something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. But before we get into that, Steve-O, what's up? Hey, Tucker. Good to be back on the show. It has been a little bit, a lot going on. Man, the, the real estate market is popping right now. It's just it's the weather's been beautiful and it's like everything has all real estate has unthawed and we are doing you know six months of real estate in three months you know I, there's that pent up business out there that just couldn't couldn't quite work its way to market and and get on the market and it's all rushing to market now so it's pretty insane right now but it's it's good and I'm enjoying it especially after you know it's it's a feast or famine, that's for sure how it feels. <laughs> how about yeah, you? Pretty much the same. We got a lot of projects going on. It's getting a little interesting out there too. You've got we had an interesting article come out. We'll actually probably do a show on it next week in terms of Zillow and their, you know, white Trojan horse deal. But I'm sure you actually, hopefully you can line somebody up for that. I do, I do. Believe it or not, while we were on just in the last five minutes, and this will kind of prep our guests for this, I've been messaging on Facebook a friend of mine she is in the pilot program in Orlando Florida her name is Veronica I'm probably gonna is it Veronica Corningstone no Veronica (laughs) Figura that was a joke Steve (laughs) anchorman you know (laughs) Veronica Figura and I know I'm butchering that but she's with Remax she's a huge agent out of Orlando Florida I've met her a couple times at different Zillow events she's really well connected with Zillow as well and they have her in the pilot program in fact I sent you an article Tucker and in that her I don't know if that article had her name or not but I'll send you another article where she is mentioned multiple times and she's getting a lot of hate mail. There's a lot of people really up in arms thinking Zillow is is trying to cut out realtors. And it would be great to hear her take on it. As a realtor in this pilot program, are they trying to cut us out? How is it affecting us? What is it doing? And I think for one last little teaser, the pilot program is now something Zillow's testing where sellers can click a button and basically start a process of investors making immediate offers for their property in a very rapid type sale fashion obviously not for top dollar and that's i think will will be a big part of that conversation is probably more of a wholesale type situation it'll be interesting to see your take on it too tucker because you're a wholesaler you're a guy that goes out and buys properties that way a lot It'll be interesting to see what you think of it and your thoughts, whether it affects you in a good or bad way or if it's indifferent. Yeah, so interesting show. Our listeners can stay tuned and, and look for an exciting podcast about that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, without further ado, maybe let's jump into this week's show. We've got a guest here that he's the founder of Mirth Provisions, which is a local, basically marijuana products company, or at least that's how I'm going to describe it. He can probably correct me if need be. 
He's appeared on multiple major news outlets, too many to name at this point. And on top of that, he's been a friend of mine since about sixth grade. So, Adam Stites, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Tucker. Glad to have you. So, basically, you're the founder of Mirth Provisions, which maybe just give our listeners a little background in terms of what that means. Obviously, I know what it means, you know what it means, but let's maybe bring everybody else into the fold and kind of give them a little background on that. Sure. We manufacture a line of cannabis-infused beverages and sublingual sprays. We're currently in Washington State, Oregon, Arizona, and we just signed a licensing partnership with a company in California. So basically everything that you would drink or spray or liquid forms of cannabis, that's the line of business that we're in. And we like to make products that are natural and are different and better in terms of flavor and effect and the source of the ingredients. Yeah, which is an interesting deal. And we'll dive kind of more into, you know, the scope of what it is people have available to them now in the states where, you know, marijuana has been legalized. But Maybe give us a kind of a, a little mm. deeper scope in terms of the products you guys create and then maybe differentiate because this is something I didn't know until recently. You've got your THC type products, you've got your CBD products, and then you've got a fusion of the two. So maybe give some clarification on that and, and kind of how your products play into that. Sure. So essentially how cannabis works in the body, there are two elements that are going to create an effect that you'd feel. The first is the cannabinoids, and that's what everybody knows is THC. CBD is getting a lot more press recently. There's CBN, CBG, a whole host of other cannabinoids, which in concert create a certain effect. So those are paired then with terpenes, and those are natural flavors that exist in organic material. So whether that's cannabis, or in our case, we use natural terpenes within fruit, paired with our specific cannabinoid blends to produce a consistent effect, whether you're enjoying a, a legal in Seattle or Scottsdale. So we have our pomegranate, which is our sativa blend. That's a upgoing energetic sort of effect. We have our lemon ginger, which is our indica blend, more of a relaxing, get horizontal on the couch sort of effect. I think uh, they call it in the couch, right? <laughs> in the, well, it sounds, it sounds like you're, you, you maybe have some experience in this area. So, <laughs> in my young there you go. So the our Rainier cherries and all Washington source products a hybrid. We also have a new cranberry sourced exclusively from the Washington and Oregon coast uh, cranberries, and that's a one to one CBD to THC ratio beverage. So this is the sort of product, and I kind of approached it. I'm a, a marathoner, a triathlete. I like to enjoy cannabis. I am not interested in, in smoking or vaping. It's just not consistent with my lifestyle. So we wanted to create a product that was kind of the healthiest thing you could go to a dispensary or a retail store and and try. And we also wanted to create a product which removes the stigma of cannabis that's, you know, still associated. I always think if I had my mom or dad over for a barbecue and I said, Hey mom, dad, you want to smoke a joint that, you know, that probably wouldn't go over too well. But if I offered them a drink and we're all pretty comfortable with the concept of recreating with a beverage, that would be a much more socially acceptable or there'd be less stigma associated with that. So that's kind of what we wanted to produce at the same time as producing a great product is to have a product that folks could try that they were more comfortable with, especially the new folks. They say, hey, cannabis is legal in my state. I'd like to try this again. Yeah. And I think there's, uh, I'll let Steve go into question here, but just kind of a little background. So, you know, obviously in my younger years, I had much more experience with the THC variety than I do today. I don't particularly like the THC. And since it's legal, we can talk about this openly, right? But the CBD, I personally think it's a great thing. I mean, whenever I go play ball, especially two nights in a row, play hoops, that is my body. I'm not as young as I used to be. And my body hurts, man, when I'm trying to get off the couch. And I'm a big fan of the CBD edibles. And it does great things for my joints. I, my body, I feel like I'm 20 years old again after I, you know, I eat one of those. So just for the listeners out there to kind of know what it can do for you. 
Yeah, I have a couple of questions on this. First of all, and I have questions about that CBD, Tucker, because I'm less familiar with that, but I did research it before we started this show. Like yourself, Tucker, in my younger years, I did dabble with THC and edibles. I'm way less familiar with the drinks, the beverages. So I have some questions about that, Adam. And that, it sounds like that is exclusively your focus of your company. That's right. Liquid cannabis. Yep. Okay. Is it a can? Is it like the size of a soda can or a beer can? It is a glass 11 and a half ounce stubby. So if you went to mirthprovisions.com, you could see images of the product. Okay. 11 and a half ounce. That's, that is about, I think a soda can, beer cans, 12 ounces. So it's about the same quantity. And typically like the average person, let's just, the effects are similar to smoking a joint. Is that what I'm understanding to some extent or to, the, to getting a, you know, smoking it or edibles for that matter? It's different in a couple of respects. So first it's precisely dose. So if you're going to smoke a joint, you don't know how high you're going to get with our product because there's only 10 milligrams in it. We take the guesswork out of getting a great high. And because you know the strains and the terpenes that are in the product, you know the effect. So the same effect you had a couple of weeks ago when you went out with your friends, you were outgoing, you were on point, you were able to have a conversation. You're going to have that same effect a couple of weeks later when you try the product. Outgoing? <laughs> well, that's the sativa. There's the sativa and there's the in the couch, right? The sativa is yeah. kind of more of an upper type. And I think they've got, from what I've heard, sativa, both in terms of THC and, and the CBD, or at least it's, it's coming if it's not. And then there's the, you know, into couch, which makes you maybe not quite as outgoing and want to just <laughs> zone out and watch the five seasons of Entourage, you know, with a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Adam, another question for you. Are you guys allowed to mix alcohol in? Is that even allowed? No, we're not. And I'm, I'm speaking from a position at it, I guess, with the regulations in the state of Washington, with the Liquor and Cannabis Board there, and then the OLCC, they do not allow for that. And we also don't expect that to be the case in the other states. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I mean, not that that couldn't change in the future, but for now, I'm not surprised they're strict on that. And then, okay, so Tucker, to your point on the CBD, this is all pretty new to me. So that is, from what I researched, yeah, you don't get the stoner high type feeling. So you do edibles of the CBD and it's more medicinal. The pain goes away without any type of high. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. It's kind of like a, a floaty body high, if there's such a thing, right? That your joints feel good. Your, your body just feels good, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it does. It doesn't have any of the head effects for the most part. You're not like sitting there zoning out watching TV and then coming to and going, what was I doing? You know, that kind of <laughs> That yeah. doesn't exist. It, you're very sharp. I think I've even read, and maybe Adam can correct me, that it, it increases your ability to concentrate and awareness in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that the case, Adam, or is that just my personal experience? One of the biggest challenges we have with cannabis is it is still, and I'm sure we're, we're going to touch on this in a few minutes, a Schedule One drug. And what that means is the federal government has deemed that it has no medicinal value whatsoever. So we're not allowed to produce studies in the United States that can confirm or deny those sorts of health claims. In a broader sense, I think we're losing that opportunity to countries like Israel, who are have a pretty focused biomedical research function that are, are starting to pick that up. So it's anecdotal in the States, Tucker. Gotcha. I'm doing my own study, Steve, and that's what I've concluded <laughs> thus far. <laughs> well, what is the research out of Israel saying, Adam? Do you know? There's a whole bunch of studies for a variety of different health claims and I, I, you know, nothing that I have immediately in front of me, but we're starting to see that they're doing legitimate research in that country because they can. And we're starting to see this in, in a smaller sense 
in the in the U.S. done by private companies in states where it's legal. But as far as a university doing a study, no, that can't be done until cannabis is either rescheduled or legalized or, or some other change happens at the federal level. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So to kind of move along here a little bit, because we got a big topic to talk about in terms of the actual real estate implications of this, but you know, you're feeling Adam, and this is just kind of what I've seen from an arm's length in the industry. It seems like a lot of product lines are growing. A lot of, you know, products, companies, marijuana related products, companies are definitely growing, which means, you know, they've got more employees, they've got more capital at work, they've got more locations and things like that. Maybe extrapolate a little bit on that. Is that what you're seeing on your end? And is that what you're feeling? Obviously, you just signed a big licensing deal in California. That means you probably need more, you know, whether it be capital, people wise or monetarily, maybe extrapolate on that a little bit. Sure. So I guess start from the 50,000 foot view and then work down to my experience. What we're hearing is an informal market in the United States on cannabis of around $10 billion. We expect that grows as you transition to either a medical market. And then when you go from a medical market to a adult use or recreational market, 10 times is typically the number of what you see that market grow. So it gives you some indication as a real estate investor, if you want to get ahead of the curve, what you might expect in terms of demand from that market. What we're seeing specifically in Washington state is strong growth. The edibles market, I guess, for the month of January versus the preceding January in 2016 was up 91%. I'm sorry, it was up 71%. Liquid infused edibles were up 94%. So you can obviously see that's a, it's a pretty aggressive growth that's being driven by the expansion of more retail stores in Washington and additional products, consumer familiarity of the products. Yeah, probably just general awareness is you know growing pretty rapidly as well, which is attributed to a lot of that, I would assume. So now that we've kind of, you know, established that it's a it's a rapidly growing industry and it's got a, a potentially a huge, you know, upward trajectory in terms of overall use, you know, market share dollars wise. What do you think the legalization of this or how has it affected the real estate markets that you're in contact with and maybe, you know, other contacts that you have within the business? You know, I know more specifically it's going to be kind of commercial warehouse space, things like that. But maybe give me your experience in, in terms of that. Sure. So, you know, our experience really started in 2012, 2013, where we had to apply for a license in the state of Washington, which is the state we started in. And you have to submit an address with your license application. So we went to the market with the idea to sign a letter of intent to lease or have a lease which would be conditioned upon us receiving a license from the state regulator. I live in Vancouver, Washington, so I started looking around Vancouver as the natural spot. Once you put the restriction of what the state requires as far as distance from prohibited entities, that means parks, schools, etc., which I believe was 2,000 feet at the time, the city then had their own internal zoning requirements, which would allow for the use. And then you added the filter of property that would work for the business, i.e. the space and the dimensions and the access you need. And then finally, adding the layer of a landlord who was cannabis friendly, we could find nothing in Vancouver. <laughs> so then we started going north. But the problem is once you leave the city of Vancouver, you're now in Clark County. Clark County is a much more conservative place than the city of Vancouver, and the county commissioners have did not allow for the use. So everything north of city limits were not useful. The next friendly area was Longview, which is about a 45-minute drive from downtown Vancouver. So ultimately, that's where we ended up finding a piece of property. Longview, as you know, is a, is a large, older industrial community, and there's just, frankly, more availability. You were very nice there, by the way. Yeah, it, it had, <laughs> it's a very distinct place. Yes. Well, we, we like to call it the Detroit of Washington State. Yeah. But, 
<laughs> so it's out, so, okay. So that that's why you ended up in Longview then, because I was always curious about why that was the case. But it sounds like you know that was kind of the next friendly city, so to speak, where you could actually find real estate to serve your needs. Yeah, so so that's where we ended up in Washington. We just leased a space on in inner southeast Portland. That's great. It's in the distillers district, and and I really attribute that to the fact that landlords are just more comfortable with the use now. And they see it on TV and in the newness and the novelty is worn off. And they say, hey, this is a, you guys are established business. You're demonstrating revenue and profits in the state of Washington. You seem like a solid tenant. So we're going more and more into the mainstream. And, and for us to have a really kind of a showcase space in inner southeast is nice as we're meeting with prospective licensees. Gotcha. So is that just purely <clears throat> office space? Or are you doing any manufacturing or bottling or packaging there? It's primarily bottling and manufacturing the product. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So it's yeah. it's probably a fairly sizable space then. It's approximately 3,500 square feet in Portland, which is pretty compact. We've got 8,400 square feet in Longview. Okay. So one of the challenges, guys, that you know we'd run into is, and it's a legitimate concern, right, is the landlords who say, I'm not comfortable with this use. And that's really the biggest challenge and perhaps what I see as an opportunity here. And there's a huge risk premium right now that if you're willing to rent to cannabis users, you're going to get quite a premium in rents, but you also need to understand what that, what that risk is. One, I guess, <laughs> what, what's that? You're going to get cash. <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly are going to get cash. The, the biggest challenge is finding a bank who will play yeah. ball with the tenant who knows, Hey, I want to see your leases as part of our annual due diligence. And Hey, you know, what's green enterprises incorporated and you need to be prepared to have that conversation or pre-flight the lease with the bank. And it's not just, oh, you know, the banks are old stodgy businesses. They have legitimate concerns with respect to the federal government. The banks are not getting clear guidance from the federal governments. Civil asset forfeiture is a real thing. What does that mean, Adam, just for clarification for our listeners? So civil asset forfeiture, and, and I'm not an attorney, and, you know, anyone should seek legal advice if they want to understand this at a deep level, is the concept where if you're committing or property is used in committing a, a federal crime, which at a federal level, even though if you're licensed by uh, the OLCC or the Washington State Liquor Control Board or any regulator, you're still in violation of federal law. And the government can come in and seize any assets which are associated with that illegal activity. Gotcha. So that's the concern as a landlord. Worst case scenario is government comes in, takes your property. From the bank scenario, the collateral goes away. And their borrower no longer has that asset in order to service the debt. So it, it starts to become a big ugly from everyone's perspective. And, you know, there, there's some various ways that we've seen those risks partially mitigated from a, a landlord's perspective. And there's some things happening right now in terms of the federal legislature, in terms of the Fair Enforcement Banking Act, which have been introduced by a couple of reps in Washington and Colorado. But it's, you know, it's still a risk. Yeah, we actually just short story because I don't want to take too much away from what you're telling us here. But next door to us, there's a small little building and these guys opened up a little store. They basically have a product that services people that need a lighter that, that enjoy marijuana. Right. And so they were going to also sell some edibles and, and things like that. But the landlord, kind of an old guy, old school, let's say he wasn't comfortable with it. So he's basically put the kibosh on them selling anything other than the actual product that isn't it's a byproduct of needing to you know smoke weed but it's not actually THC or CBD related yeah in, in the industry we make that distinction it's called touching the plant or not touching the plant business right okay better way and to there put are it. some there, there are some significant differences in that 
as it relates to tax policy. So there's this ugly little thing if your listeners want to look up IRS 280E, which essentially means the federal government, and this is a product of the 1980s in Miami and, and the Coke dealers writing off their, their speedboats, is that you can only deduct or you don't have access to deduct GNA from your, your income taxes if you're in a federally illegal activity. So in other words, if you touch the plant, you're paying income tax on your gross profits. Wow. Let that yeah, sink a- in for a second. Well, that sounds like something Oregon wanted to do, one of the last measures that they tried to push through. (laughs) But that is a big ugly. That is for sure. I mean, that's basically you're trying to put people out of business, essentially, is what that means. So, you know, I guess in addition to what we talked about there, we are seeing some interesting moves in the industry related to real estate and cannabis. There's a company out of California. It's a publicly traded REIT called Innovative Industrial Properties. They're doing sale leasebacks. So they're buying a property from an existing operator and they're leasing that property back. They recently had an IPO. It didn't go as well as planned, I think, based on their targets. But there's some interesting businesses that are coming out of this. So with the lease back, just to clarify, and maybe you know better, are they leasing back to the owner and the owner subleasing to marijuana or is the owner they're leasing back to the marijuana type businesses? I'm not exactly sure, Tucker, who okay. the ownership structure is. I, I simply know that they're buying property that's currently operational as cash flowing and releasing it back to that tenant. And I think the overarching idea is, hey, this is a business where it's hard to get access to working capital, operating lines of credit, the traditional sort of asset-based financing. So they're looking at monetizing the, the real estate for the purpose of that cultivator to then be able to buy those fixed assets necessary to grow the business, lights, production equipment, et cetera. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's just kind of a lot of workarounds, basically, for the time being, anyway. It is, and I and I think in chaos there's opportunity, but there there's also risk. You know, I think potentially the way that this is going is if you have the capability to have access to industrial property, you can mitigate the risk of being able to rent out to a cannabis tenant. You're able to get significant premiums over market to rent, and then you can essentially you can hold out until there's greater banking clarity you're going to then be able to get kind of standard financing come in and and you'll be in a really good position. But right now, what we're seeing for those banks who will touch it is, you know, doubling the cap rates that they're going to offer based on the volatility of those rents. Right. Adam, so when you're talking about the banking component, it sounded like for a little bit, you were talking about the mortgage side of things. Was that correct? Doing mortgages for these or, or commercial loans for these properties? That's right. Yeah. Okay. In that same context, the banking in general, correct me if I'm wrong, but as of right now today, there just isn't a place for these companies to put their their cash, correct? Or there's very few? No, that's not necessarily the case. In Washington state, I have a bank account with a state chartered bank. It's based out of Longview. And I think there are six or seven other banks and credit unions in Washington state that openly bank the industry. Again, that is getting better. Yeah. When we first started in the space, we'd have our vans come back, we'd make deliveries, and we'd bring in 70% of the payments via cash, 30% via check. That's now flip-flop. So we're getting 70% of our payments via check, which means our customers have bank accounts, and it's significantly better for the business from a risk standpoint. And Adam, your customers are the dispensaries, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And the edibles, you're categorized as an edible, is that correct? We are. Okay. And that became legal in Oregon. Was it January of 17? You know, I think it became legal from a recreational standpoint in 16. Yeah, I think it was a year prior. 
But it took a while for the licensing and and all the storefronts to essentially pop up because there's a lot of pre-work involved in, you know, legalizing your your stand essentially, right? Absolutely. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. I know you had a question, Stephen, and Adam, I'm sure, has a lot to say about this in terms of there is a lot of people kind of getting into the green rush, so to speak. So maybe you can you can talk about that a little, Steve. Yeah, this has been my observation. I mean, as a real estate agent, I get pinged all the time. It feels like a little bit less as of late, but I would get pinged all the time in mass emails and and inquiries on Zillow and other places where people were looking for properties to purchase for this. And in my just observation of, of that and looking around and just driving around Portland, make no mistake, I mean, you see dispensaries far more often commonly than you see Starbucks in this day and age, possibly more commonly than you see Starbucks and McDonald's put together. So it just kind of felt like there was a bubble forming there. And I wanted to ask Adam his take on this, and, and it, it shouldn't be a big surprise to us. Bubbles do frequently occur when you have a new market opened up. Good example of this would be the dot-com bubble. You know, in the mid-90s, all of a sudden, this wonderful technology called the internet came along, and everybody, you know, couldn't make a wrong decision in that regard. And part of it, too, I think, you know, and it's very similar with the dot-com and, and this, investors are rushing into it because they think there's such a huge opportunity and there's so much money to be made and they want to be the first leading the charge. And so they're willing to not make money for a while. Investors will throw, you know, X amount of dollars into it and they'll say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not going to be profitable for a while because we're we're just getting it off the ground. Well, if every investor is doing that and they're all not making money for a while, I remember in the dot-com days, you know, all these IPOs and all these companies, very few of them were turning a profit. And they were like, well, but we're getting a lot of looks or we're getting a lot of eyeballs and that's what it's about. And someday we're going to monetize that. And and then we all know what happened in, in around 2000 there. It kind of feels like there's a little bit of that. Now, the good news is a lot of great companies survived the dot-com bubble. You know, Amazon, Yahoo, even though Yahoo struggled later on, but in the early 2000s, they were still rocking and rolling and doing great. And there's there's dozens and dozens of other examples. And it will be the same with this, I think, if indeed that is the case. The players who are doing a great job, know their product, run it like a well-run business, I'm sure will survive and, and do just fine. But I'm curious your take on all of this, Adam. I think from a landlord's perspective, this is no different than if you were leasing it out to a coffee shop. Is this someone who, you know, they just won the lottery and, and they think it's a swell idea? Or is it a proven operator who has a sharp management team and a track record of success? They're well-funded and they have a product which is different and better. So this business is no different. I mean, it's everybody because of the stigma and it used to be illegal and, and everybody gets wowed by that. But the, at the end of the day, this is just another business and it's another product. So the fundamentals still need to be there. And I think as a landlord or as an investor, you need to do your due diligence on the management team, the product. What's consumer acceptance? What are current sales and profits? What's cash in the bank? Have they raised money? Cannabis doesn't live in any sort of vacuum. It's subject to the same economic realities as everyone else. Yeah, I, I agree there. And I think, Steve, just to further clarify what Adam said, you know, I, I agree there's a ton of dispensaries around. And I think there needs to be a delineation between, you know, you have your people that are retailers essentially right they're retailing all the products that the world of illegalized cannabis has created 
And then you have your product creators. And I think a lot of the product creation businesses are probably a little better put together on the average because you got to raise capital, you got to manufacture, you got to bottle, you got to do things other than just put a sign out that usually in Portland anyway, it's a ragtag looking sign and it's got a, you know, a green cross on it or something like that. And you got, you know, Doobie Puffer one and Doobie Puffer two behind the counter running your business, right? (laughs) So it's a little less sophisticated of a business in a lot of cases, not entirely, but in a lot of cases, and in my experience, that's what I've seen in a lot of places. And so I think that's probably what's giving you that feeling on Adam's side you know, they're a product creator, right? And so their retailers, I assume for the most part, are these types of dispensaries. And they'll, maybe there's too many around right now and time will tell, you know, if they aren't, you know, pushing enough sales through, they'll probably end up closing the doors. And like Adam said, it's like renting, you know, your your commercial space to any sort of a coffee shop pop-up, right? I mean, coffee shop's a tough business to get into if you're not Starbucks, you know, and so there'll probably be some attrition there and some turnover. But I think personally, the product side of it, is, you know, it's kind of like the gold rush, right? Everybody came to look for gold, but the people who made the most money were selling shovels and, and other types of things that are necessary in order to do that. And I think Adam's on the side of the business that's selling shovels, And unless you want to correct me, Adam. No, I think you're right. There's a distinction between the different types of businesses. And I will say there are a lot of extremely well-run dispensary chains who do their site selection the same way that any other retail business does. They're looking at cars per day. They're looking at the rents. They're looking at their existing businesses and in modeling out what a couple new locations could mean for them in terms of reduced costs and, and other business fundamentals. But essentially what we're looking to do is to create product that's truly different and better. And we're looking to create a brand. We're not trying to be a, a jack of all trades, a master of none. We're not chasing the puck. Hey, what's the new hot trend in cannabis? We want to create something that's sustainable, that we can expand to multiple states, and that ultimately will be a brand that people will know and trust and it will be their go-to when they go to their local dispensary. They say, hey, you know, I'm not a guy who smokes, but I'm going to pick up a couple of legals for the weekend. And you're right, Tucker. We're talking mostly about the real estate component of this and the real estate component as is visible to us. I mean, there's multiple components to the real estate side because I've lately been hearing a lot more about the farms and some of the growth operations. But, you know, as pertains to us here in the metro area and as, as most of us and our listeners visibly will see is the dispensaries. And I do agree with you. I mean, there is a major difference between a dispensary and how it's run and a coffee shop. Like Adam kind of brought up, you know, he was saying, you know, a leaser should, you know, vet them just like you would a coffee shop. And and I get that. And I agree with that. Part of the uniqueness in this industry is a simple conundrum. And that is that the people who know this product best tend to use it. And they oftentimes, and there's definitely exceptions, a lot of exceptions, but oftentimes they tend to be like you gave in your little analogy. They're, you know, they're a little dopey. They're behind the counter. They're, they're not the best business runners. You stray from that and you go, okay, so, so we're going to, you know, the successful ones are going to be the ones that don't use it. Well, that's a problem too. Obviously, you know, how successful are you going to be in running a dispensary if you don't partake and use the product at all? So, there are those who navigate those waters, and they do a great job of it. I'm, I'm sure of it. But there's also a lot that don't navigate that conundrum and that challenge. So it's going to be interesting to see this shake out. The other component to this, unlike the coffee business today, look, we know the coffee market. We know how many people – I mean, I don't know the stats in front of me, but I guarantee you there's people in you know Starbucks and many other large operations and maybe smaller ones – who know how many out of 10 Americans drink coffee, how many average cups they drink, 
those aren't stats we have here. This is a, a new open market. They will, you know, five, 10 years from now, we'll know those stats, but we don't today. So it's really easy in this process, in all the excitement to rush out to be a dispensary and to grab the real estate and be there for that market for people to overshoot. They don't usually undershoot this stuff. You know, I don't see a scenario where a bunch of people are going to look around and go, gosh, we need more dispensaries. I don't think we put enough up because, you know, there's a line around the block coming into it. I think it's going to be the opposite where the business is going to at one point and it's probably going to be tied to investor money when when they're tired of subsidizing and bankrolling some of these operations that aren't finally after years turning a profit. There'll be some kind of contraction where they realize, hey, we overbuilt. There's too many dispensaries. And then they'll, you know, you'll see a little bit of a, a bubble pop, if you will. Again, the great well-run dispensaries, in my opinion, who navigated that dilemma of we know our product, yet we know how to run a smart business despite knowing that product, which isn't as simple as it seems will absolutely survive and navigate it well. And then there'll be a healthy contraction, just like you see in a lot of other type bubbles, including the dot-com one. Yeah, just so, a quick final story. Sorry, Adam, cut you off, but you can probably tie this in. So I've got a buddy, you probably know him Steve, as well, at Club Sport, who's a commercial realtor. And he actually just put a property up for sale on McLaughlin, right? McLaughlin's got a ton of commercial buildings. I mean, there's there's no shortage, right? It's kind of, I always refer to it as the, I mean, it's, well, it's where we started in the mortgage business. So we have lots of, you know, history there, good and bad. But I always say it's where businesses go to die, right? Because there's always (laughs) this turnover on McLaughlin. But he sold this property that used to be a car lot. And Paul, if you're out there, obviously you know what I'm talking about. But he sold it for a ridiculously high price. And he put it out there, you know, it was like the hope and pray price, right? And they got it. But they got it because they got approval to move, you know, marijuana products business in there. And I don't know if they're going to be selling products and weed or whatever it's going to be, but they're going to be getting such a ridiculous amount of rent that it justified him buying the property for a ridiculous amount more than what it probably would sell for otherwise for any other type of use. So I guess that's how everything links up just for our listeners in terms of at least this transaction. I'm sure there's others out there somewhat like it, but it does create upward pressure on pricing for the underlying asset as well for a lot of these places. And Tucker, absolutely. We're saying the same thing, but I think, and, and I'm a guy who's bought real estate over the last 15 years personally. So this is why I enjoy this conversation. It's a different take on an industry I'm already in, is that that landlord's assuming a hell of a lot of risk because yeah. assuming he can get a mortgage for that amount, he's taking all of the tenant default risk. You know, And I'm working under the assumption that there's not a, a super strong personal guarantee or some other way for him to mitigate against that. So there's no free lunch in this business. And there's also no free lunch with respect to federal enforcement on that. So if we have Jeff Sessions who in in the current administration, these guys are a wild card. And at any point, Jeff Sessions could send out love letters. It's very easy. You go to the OLCC or the Washington State Department of Liquor and Cannabis, you get a list of all the licensees and you start sending love letters out that say, hey, cease and desist. This is an illegal operation. You need to stop. That would send a chill through the industry. Yeah. And in that case, your tenant and that that lease and that purchase price isn't looking too good. So really quickly I want to go back to to something that Steve said, which is one, I, I agree completely, Steve, what you're saying that in any free market that supply eventually outpaces demand. And I think we'll see that in cannabis, right? There will be a lot of people who rush into the space and not everybody will make it. Only the strong will survive. 
where I probably do disagree with what you said is that, well, coffee's well established and we don't know anything about cannabis. I don't think that's the case. There are several data analytics companies that are collecting ring data from retailers and dispensaries in Washington, Colorado, Oregon, California soon. You can go to sites like i502data.com and see consistent revenue by retailers, by product, month after month. You know, some of these retailers consistently over a million and a half a month in revenue out of some of these popular stores. So I guess what I was saying, Adam, you said that edibles in Washington, January of 16 to January 17, were up like 71 percent. There's a reason for that, because they're newish. So new people every day are going, hey, you know what? Remember when I was 22, I smoked some weed. Let me go buy something, see what I like. Hey, that was pretty cool. And then they start using it on a regular basis. That's happening constantly. So another year from now, that 71% could be up, you know, 140% from 2016. We don't know yet where that materializes and peaks out at. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's a growing industry. Yep. Yeah. Whereas with coffee, I mean, there's no one waking up and going, hey, you know, I'm 40 years old. I've never had coffee. I wonder if I should start drinking it. There are people that are doing that, but it's very, very different. It's very different. It's not a new product into the market. And it's exciting. That is what makes this industry so exciting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's few businesses where there's such an opportunity like this. No one's questioning that because it is a new category, a new space that is uncharted. But I think there's a tendency for too much to go into it. And it's not a tendency. I'm seeing it. I just feel like I'm seeing it, that there's a lot of investors rushing into this. I'd be interested to know the profitability on a lot of these dispensaries. My gut tells me most of them are not turning a profit and they're being subsidized, or many of them. And the idea behind it is, well, it's a new business. We got to subsidize this for a while before it gets its own legs and becomes profitable. At some point, and that was very common with like the dot-com bubble, at some point, the money has a tendency to, to get tired of that. And when it does, it can you know cause issues in that regard. Well, well, here's a question for Adam, and obviously I don't want you to disclose anything you're not comfortable, but what's your general feeling with the distributors that you service? I mean, are they all pretty well capitalized at this point? You don't have to hire Bruno to go bust some knees to get payment or anything like that? I mean, it, it, what's your feeling? I wish it was that exciting and fun. You know, it's really just a lot of block and tackle and, you know, everyday 1% improvement and running a, a good business. But no, what we're seeing is is that the good operators and folks who are in a good location, they've got good traffic, they're not overwhelmed with competition, they've got a track record of success, they're going to be delivering a great product, they're going to succeed. This market has, has demonstrated that there is demand for the product. Now, that doesn't mean that you can be in a, a low rent district and have five stores within 100 yard radius. That's not going to work. So, you know, from a a landlord's perspective, looking at these elements holistically will help you to evaluate whether it makes sense to rent to this tenant or to acquire a building for the purpose to rent to the the tenant. So again, a, a big thing that I've seen with my friends and partners who are successful in retailing is one, they they understand how to run the business, but a huge accelerant is that they have closed geography. That means that a city may only allow one or two retailers within their city limits. So that's a local restriction. So it's almost like having a monopoly in that given area. So if you have that sort of a situation, that should be a a green flag that this is a good opportunity, provided you've got a good operator. With respect to 
cultivation or indoor growing, what we're seeing is the price of cannabis continues to decline. And in a world where price is key, lowering your cost is key. And I'll offer for your consideration, there is no other agricultural product that we grow inside a building in Washington and Oregon. So what we're starting to see is the low price producer of cannabis is an outdoor grow and it's on the east side of the state. Who would have thought it, right? It's where we grow the apples and the pears and everything else. Revolutionary concept. We're not growing tomatoes inside a warehouse space. So if you're looking at a long-term lease to someone who is a grower, they better have one hell of a story in terms of the quality of product that they produce and how that absolutely has to be indoors. And there's a tendency for everyone to say and to say, hey, I grow the best cannabis. But to really investigate that and see, are they getting a premium to market? How are their sales? There's a lot, there's a ton of data available for you as a landlord to evaluate the strength of your tenants, unlike any other market, because there's forced public disclosure. So, you know, kind of contrary, Steve, to what you're saying that, well, hey, we just don't know, things aren't established. For sure, the market's growing at a fast pace, but never before have you been able to zero in on a specific tenant, see what their sales have been for the last 12 months, see how they've been trending, see what their margins are, right? You can actually see in Washington state what the markup they're achieving is. And with that, you can start to build a fair picture of, is this someone who I want to do business with and what's the risk involved? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Hey, Adam, where do you think this industry goes nationally? And forget you know, Jeff Sessions and Trump for a second, because obviously, they're, you know, they're not going to be, you know, regardless of how long they're in office, it's not going to be forever. And I think there's a lot of momentum with this business. Say 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I mean, do you see this legal nationally? I guess, first of all, that's a that's a big asterisk that Jeff Sessions isn't going to be a factor. But, but assuming that they kind of play the Obama role in there, it's a hands-off approach, I would expect in the next five to 15 years to see federal legalization. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's just a matter of time. I think the train has left the station and it's, I think it's bigger and moving faster than one administration can really put a stop to. And it, and it reminds me of, oh gosh, what's the word of the 20s? <laughs> prohibition. Uh, pr- prohibition. Yeah, prohibition. I mean, I just think even if they wanted to, and, I, and I'm not saying it couldn't cause problems. Don't get me wrong, Adam. I'm not saying it couldn't shutter the industry and it couldn't cause horrific damage. But would it be sustainable stoppage? I just think the train has left the station. The data is in that this is far less dangerous than other already approved substances. Primarily alcohol would be case study number one. I just see this as as going you know, state by state. We're seeing them one by one sign up for it. California was huge when they did that here recently. So it'll be interesting to watch. I think uh, just as a bookend on that, I think the tax revenue that it could create is going to be the ultimate driver and and the, you know, further legalization. I think it'll be like a big domino game after a while to just be one to the next and the next and the next and the next. But we'll see. It's an exciting thing. That's for sure. So Adam, we've been talking for a while. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So, you know, first of all, thanks for doing this interview. It was definitely cool to hear from your perspective on it. But before we get out of here, how can people, you know, find your guys' products? What's the best way for them to connect with you guys? Sure. Go to mirthprovisions.com. And if you want to try a a cold one, uh, go to our store finder, enter your zip code. And we're in about 400 stores in Oregon and Washington. Wow. Yeah, that's that's huge. And soon to be California in many, many places, right? Yes, sir. Very cool. 
Well, thanks again for joining us, Steve. I think this was a good show, man. I'm, I'm glad we brought him on and chit-chatted, and you learned a little bit about the difference between CBD and THC. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Adam, very much so. And it was great picking your brain. You have a lot of great insight on the subject, obviously. Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Tucker. All right, guys, this wraps up episode 65 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We'll be back next week with a really neat episode that Steve gave you the teaser on. So we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.